Hey everybody, welcome back to Season 2, Episode 1 of Dudes of Kung Fu. Uh, Alex and I have an awesome season planned for you guys, and we hope you're in for the long haul and enjoy what we have to say. In this episode, we discuss um, Bruce Lee's Tao of Kundo. We discuss the idea of training in multiple martial arts at the same time. We discuss the, uh, we spent some time in the UFC, a lot about Conor McGregor. And of course, we, since we're recording this on Saturday night, we're, we are discussing the CM Punk fight, which hasn't taken place yet. Um, and I am predicting that CM Punk gets choked out in the first round by Mickey Gall. So let's see how that works out for me. Anyway, enjoy the podcast. Dudes of Kung Fu. Welcome back to Season 2 of... Dudes of Kung Fu. We are back and better than ever, everybody. We hope everybody had a great uh, little vacation during the summer. I know we did. We are very excited to be back, both Alex and I. Alex, how you doing, brother? I'm doing pretty well, uh, besides the fact that I was sick yesterday, which is extremely rare for me. So if I sound a little weakened on this podcast, I hope our, our listeners understand. Yeah, you know, it's funny because I, uh, Alex and I, were, we were going to the, record the podcast last night, and um, he was really sick. And he sent me the most pathetic-looking picture of himself laying in bed looking sick. And I was like, oh, look at this poor bastard. I'm like, he looks like he's ready to die. So I immediately texted him back and saying, send me 100 bucks or I'm posting this picture on Facebook. <laughs> so, Alex, thank you for sending my family out to dinner with that 100 bucks because it was a pretty pathetic picture, folks. <laughs> well, it just it's also the fact that I'm, I'm really very rarely sick. So for something to kind of put me out of either training or doing anything out of my normal routine, usually it has to be pretty major. But like a couple days ago, my sister started uh, pre-K. And, or my, my sister, my daughter, what am I talking about? Uh, see, I'm still, I'm still uh, um, dealing with the fever, so if, if, if I start having flashbacks to a war that I was never a part of, you'll understand. Uh, so, yeah, you know, when kids start going to school, they essentially become these walking Petri dishes. And I think at some point I was, you know, talking to my daughter up close, and she looked at me and coughed right into my mouth. And uh, that, that, was, that was probably the start of it right there. There you so, go. Uh, yeah, yeah. So you got anything new going on with your your life martial arts-wise that you want to... Well, just been when working on projects as always, like have the uh, um, the other books in my series I've been working really uh, hard on. We're also working on a poster series, like uh, the posters of all the forms, kind of like, uh, you know, my Seagong had in the old days, like the sure. old so-called WT posters, but uh, doing it, you know, in a slightly more modern update, uh, you know, not going to use 70s Western font <laughs> and uh, kind of <laughs> up, up, update the way it's kind of presented and so on. So so we've been doing that, and those are also the same photos that we're going to be using for the future, um, you know, like Chum Q, BG books, and so on and so forth. So I've uh, been doing a lot of photo shoots, working on uh, a number of projects at the same time. You know, it's it's kind of like it's one of those – like this last month is one of those periods where I'm working on like 10 different things, and none of them are finished. So you just feel like you're totally busy, but you never feel like you actually get anything done because you're chipping away at 10 things at the same time. And then – so it's it's been kind of – difficult because it's nice to accomplish things from time to time but I'm in a position right now where I have all these great projects I'm working on but none of them are done so I just feel like I'm eternally busy with kind of no reward these days for, for all you folks that are on Facebook um, in addition to following uh, the Dudes of Kung Fu page I strongly suggest you follow Alex's uh, Sifu Alex Richter and his City Wing Chen page because to me 
I've only been up to Alex's school once. Um, I think it's one of the best schools I've ever been up to, as far as just the environment. Um, I, I mean, I, I've never I've never trained there as a student, so I can't. I mean, I can't pretend to say, oh, I was. It's a great place to train because I'm sure it is, but I've never was a student there. But I can tell you, just the environment and the people and the atmosphere of the school is incredible, and it's no it's no more evident in the uh, pictures that people that they post. And I don't know if Alex, if you do this, or one of the guys that work in your school do this. They post these pictures. It is so clearly what a family environment and a business environment can be like. You know, uh, so many martial arts schools just lose that family atmosphere. And your school didn't. And I love it when I when I follow, you know, I follow you and I follow um, a couple of your students I'm actually friends with on Facebook. Nice. And... Um, they post these pictures, and I just sit there and say, man, look at this. This school is everything it should be. And I really I just wanted to give you that unplanned plug because I really just think it's an awesome place to train. And people should be traveling into New York City to train with Alex at his school. It's an awesome place to be. Well, thank you very much. I mean, the, the atmosphere is definitely the, the main thing. I mean, I've trained in so many world-class schools all over the world, and, and, and what really separates one school from another is not just the high-level instruction. I mean, if you know that the instructor's good, you don't have to worry about the instruction. But the second thing is the atmosphere. You could go to a school that is a really great instructor, but everyone who trains there is a total prick, and, and you, you just don't feel comfortable there, and, and you know everyone's kind of just like sucking up to the, the top guy or whatever, and then I wanted to make sure that we had an atmosphere that was about like helping each other get better in training and and you know people enjoying themselves and it really becoming the third place that people want to go to when they're not at work or home so um it took a little bit of work but i got a good team that helps me do these things i got christy does the social media um she's my social media manager and our marketing director and she's amazing um and she does that she shows people exactly what goes on in the school in terms of the atmosphere so uh yeah i mean i've seen yeah. ethan post pictures like the last week or so last week or two weeks ago it would look like you guys were doing like a zombie apocalypse kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, they they did that after one of the um, graduation nights. This is well, like when we do the review and the testing for the students. And yeah, they had this thing where they all charge the the camera or whatever. That was cool. Really cool. I wasn't even there that night, and we had never done that before. But I mean, these are the things that they come up with on their own when I'm not even there. So it, it's it's something that's kind of perpetuating. I'm not there all the time, yet they're still kind of perpetuating this this cool atmosphere that I tried to start there. Oh, that's awesome, dude. That's awesome. Um, just more success to you guys. Really happy Thank for you. you. And and what about you? How's you? How are your classes going out in the old Staten Island? Okay, the old Staten Island. You see, you had to throw the dig on Staten Island. I didn't even mention the seventy-two flights of stairs up to your school. <laughs> <laughs> oh, by, by the way, does the audience know that I I technically no longer have an excuse not to go out to Staten Island anymore? Right. And you know what? I we didn't tell them. You should tell them. Share it, brother. Share yeah, it. Yeah. So uh, I I now, unlike many New Yorkers, I actually have a car. <laughs> um, oh my because, goodness gracious! What a big boy. Yeah, because with with the family and stuff, it's just easier on the weekends to go and do things and. Um, so we actually uh, actually drove out to your place. In fact, your your house was the first place that I actually took my brand new car to. I got it on Friday, and then I drove to your place on Saturday to watch the uh, Conor McGregor Nate Diaz fight. Oh yeah, right. <laughs> well, yeah, we had a great night that night. That was a lot of fun. And That's Connor. Great kicked butt and yes gotta love that bro you gotta love that yes speaking of Connor, what do you think is the uh 
his next step, man. So it looks like well, Dana. I mean, Go ahead. I'm sorry. Just, just, just kind of judging on what's kind of been on social media, which of course doesn't necessarily have to mean anything. It looks like Connor's perhaps looking to do that 155 belt against Eddie Alvarez, which I think is a really interesting fight. I think. Um, you know, everyone always talks about Connor not really being tested against somebody who's a real grinder. I mean, and they also saw what kind of happened when he fought Chad Mendez. And although Chad Mendez was able to kind of put a pace on him in the first few rounds, then eventually, you know, Connor was able to totally starch him. So it's a matter of, well, if Eddie Alvarez has a full camp and he's ready to go, is he going to do to Connor McGregor what Chad was kind of able to do in like the first couple rounds of their fight um, but be able to do it consistently and kind of you know do something similar to what Elodie Alvarez did to uh, Pettis you know that's kind of the uh, the question mark there but it's another chance for Connor to show his brilliance I mean I don't know what do you think about that fight I'm really as a Connor McGregor fan I want to stay away from the lightweight division I want to stay away from the welterweight division I want him to rule the featherweight division. I think his his talking as if there's nobody for him to fight in the featherweight division is just ridiculous. I really think he has to defend his title against Jose Aldo, which I think a lot of Connor fans kind of write off Jose Aldo as if he's just like, oh, some no-dick piece of shit who never did anything. I think they forget how long, how many years that man was a champion. And because he doesn't run his mouth the way Connor runs his mouth, and by the way, I love the way Connor runs his mouth, but face it, Jose Aldo is cut from a different cloth. He's more of a, a, a silent warrior type of guy, and he probably doesn't uh, draw the fans in. And I get all that, but so people forget that this guy was a warrior for years. And I think, you know, Connor maybe not, maybe should come focus on the featherweight division for a while. Come in. Defend his title against Jose Aldo. Give Frankie, Frankie Edgar the, uh, the title shot that he deserves. I mean, there's, a, there's some serious fighters in, in the featherweight division. And I, and I just think that Connor fans are forgetting that there's a serious amount of talent in the featherweight division. And, I, and I'm afraid that Connor is going to be stop believing his own hype and start like, you know, next thing you know, what does he want to fight? A heavyweight? You know what I mean? It's like it's getting sure. ridiculous. Well, there is that, but I think part of the problem is also from a money perspective because don't forget, Connor really changed the game in terms of <laughs> the type of money that these people earn. And, and you know, like the disclosed sum was like Connor got $3 million for that fight and, and Nate got $2 million. Of course, that's without the pay-per-view buy-ins and all that kind of stuff. But, I mean, pretty amazing that just based on Connor's star power, he can actually even get someone like Nate Diaz to make like his standard flat rate of like $2 million, which is really incredible. Um, but I think the problem with the Jose Aldo rematch is that the first one was built up so much, and then the first time they were about to fight, Jose pulled out with that rib injury, and then Chad had to kind of fill in at the last right. moment. So there was like this big buildup, and then this disappointment. And then they had to build up the fight back again only for Connor to knock him out in 13 seconds. So I think it's not just a matter of the Connor fans dismissing Jose, because Jose is no slouch. I mean, come on, he is, he's definitely pound for pound one of the greatest fighters um, still today and the fact that he lost to Conor McGregor is no um, is, is I mean Conor McGregor is amazing but I don't think that that it doesn't discredit Jose Aldo at all but I think the problem is from a money perspective how can you really hype a fight against somebody that he beat in 13 seconds it's not like they had a five round war and it was like a crazy decision or a close decision or even a, a one sided decision it was a 13 second starching right. and I think that's always a very difficult that that that's very difficult to resell. And then the problem with Frankie, and I'm a huge Frankie Edgar fan, and a big part of me would love to see Frankie and Connor go at it because I think that would be a really interesting matchup. 
is that Frankie didn't do so good when he went for the interim belt against Jose. I mean, if you watch that fight, um, Frankie, in my opinion, to a certain degree, at least in the later rounds, did much better the first time he fought Jose. So it's hard to make a case for Frankie getting in there when he didn't perform to his abilities against Jose in the last fight. And then the question is, well, who else is there in the featherweight division? And it's a tough cut for Connor to do. I mean, he really has to deplete himself to get there. And... For what money and for what opponent? You know what I mean. One okay, fifty-five well, might be a better fit. I, again, I I agree with you on that, that. That what you're saying it makes sense. Then what I'm saying is, then he has to just give up the title. He has to, you know, you, you gotta give up the title to Jose Aldo and stick to lightweight. Stick, sure. you know, stick stick to the one fifty-five. There's so many. I mean. But he's going to be fighting some seriously talented guys there. I mean, you know, I know the whole, you know, you got the whole Dos Anjos again. Nate Diaz fights there. I mean, you know, there's somebody I can't even say his freaking name. Khabib, whatever. Uh, Nurmagomedov, yeah. Right, Nurmagomedov. yeah. Nurmagomedov, yeah, that would be a really good fight. Except he was out for a little bit. He probably has one or two more fights to get back into title contention. But he's amazing. He's absolutely amazing. Right, and then, you know, we all know Eddie Alvarez is no joke. So, I just think that... Uh, I think Connor has to make a decision and stick with it, and and I think the smart decision is either either make the decision I'm going to go to featherweight and just rule that class, or forget about featherweight and move to lightweight. But none of this up and down crap and what should I do next crap. He's got to pick a division and stick with it, you know? Yeah, but part of that unpredictability is also his marketability. I mean, to a certain degree from a business perspective, that's also what allows him to kind of command what he wants because people don't know. Is he going to go back? Is he going to do this? So whenever he asks for something, um, he can ask for more because he's 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 got that unpredictability in terms of what he's going to go for next. So no, That's a good um, point. That's a good point. Yeah, I mean, we'll, we'll we'll definitely see. I mean, it was really great to see him fight. I would, I, I think, at 155, there's a lot of opponents there that that would be really amazing to see him against. And uh, but speaking of um, welterweight, by the way, um, do you know that? Uh, I don't know if you saw that last Donald Cerrone fight. Um, it was really incredible. It was on, I think, on the last pay per view. Uh, UFC card, it was phenomenal. And now he's just been signed to fight Robbie Lawler. Who dropped out of the fight today. Oh, he did? Robbie Lawler dropped out today, this morning. Oh, man, because that was supposed to be in Madison Square Garden. Why did right. he drop out of the fight? I didn't even hear that. Yeah, Robbie Lawler dropped out of the fight this morning. Matter of fact, there's a, there's a joke fight poster up of um, Cowboy Cerrone is going to fight Cowboy Cerrone. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I'm, sure he, I'm sure he would take that fight. Right, exactly, because <laughs> he, he knows he can beat him. <laughs> but, uh, but uh, yeah, Robbie Lawler dropped out this morning, so it looks like um, they need another opponent for him. Oh, wow. As a matter of fact, I, you know, I, I, I'm pretty sure I read, oh, yeah, I, I'm definitely right. Uh, Dana White tweeted out this morning that um, he got a, a, a message, he, he tweeted out a text message that he got from Cowboy Cerrone saying that if someone was looking for a fight on tonight's card, he would take the fight. Yes, well, that's not what Donald Cerrone is known for. I mean, right? You know, he's like, listen, guy. yeah, if you need, need a guy for me to fight tonight, I'll fight him tonight. That to me, that's just that. That's a fighter, dude. That's like, yeah. you know, that's someone who's in it for, because he just loves to fight. And thank God this shit is legal. Otherwise, he'd be beating all us people up. <laughs> Speaking about the UFC, dude, what do you think about the? Uh, I even hate to use this freaking wrestling term. CM Punk versus. Uh, 
Uh, Mickey Gall, right? Mickey Gall, yeah. Well, um, well, by the time this podcast comes out, which should be Monday or whatever, this is going to be old news because uh, we're actually, for those who don't know, we're recording this podcast. Actually, the you know, tonight's UFC is starting right about now. I think the prelims are right. starting around 7.30. Um, so we'll, we'll, in a couple hours, this will this will already be news anyway. Um, well, I don't know. I mean, um, am I going out on a limb to think that uh, CM Punk's going to uh, going to get smashed in the first thirty seconds? I mean, um, now here's the thing. Um, I understand like people are upset because they feel it's very sensationalistic or whatever. Like, uh, you know, the UFC's like they're kind of comparing it to the Brock Lesnar thing. But in my opinion, it's like, look, CM Punk is somebody who comes from WWE, was a big star over there. I knew nothing, I I don't know anything about WWE or any of that kind of wrestling stuff, Um, but I know that he was a big star over there. And it definitely says something for him to say, you know what, he's not an MMA guy, he didn't do MMA before, he didn't even do like karate growing up or anything like that. It's not like he even had some kind of martial arts background growing up. And to say that it's it's a challenge of his, He, he wants to do it, he wants to feel what it's like, I mean, that takes some serious balls, man. And, and, and you know, there's plenty of uh, armchair and keyboard warriors out there who are going to talk all sorts of shit for him about him and why he shouldn't be there and stuff. And, yeah, I mean, maybe you think it's unfair that he gets to fight in UFC just because of his name. But, I mean, think about it. If you don't have a name, or let's say you had a name but you have no reason to be in UFC because you, you don't have the background, but you want to do it and you have the balls to go into the UFC in the octagon and fight – I mean, I'm sorry, that takes something. And even if he loses in 30 seconds, even if he gets knocked the hell out right away, which is probably going to happen, I I foresee if it's not a straight knockdown, I see a takedown and some vicious ground and pound or a submission or whatever. I see it happening really quickly. Um, Hey, man, I mean, hats off to him. That takes balls. I mean, he's got all the money he needs. He doesn't need to do it. He's doing it as a personal challenge. So, uh, man, I mean... What what can I say? Me rooting against him has nothing to do with... um me not liking him. I mean, I don't even know who the hell he is. But, you know, I don't watch wrestling. I My, my son's into it. But um, I just don't think whether... I think although it's good for the numbers for the UFC, you know, the UFC will get more views because all the wrestling fans will want to watch CM Punk fight. And I think that... And in that way, it's good for the UFC. I think as an overall perception of the, of the sport, though... It, it kind of ruins it because, or I think it's a negative. The more wrestlers that come over, unless they are established um, collegiate wrestlers or Olympic wrestlers, I think it kind of takes something away from the authenticity of the of the UFC and of, of mixed martial arts in general. And I think what bothers me the most is that he's using is that the UFC is allowing him to use the name CM Punk, which we both know. Is a, is a name that's owned by the WWE. Mm-hmm. So somehow the WWE is now getting money from this. And whenever there's some a money trail between two different businesses, there's going to be compensation going on. And that's what bothers me. It's, it's not so much the um, that I think there's corruption involved. It's the appearance of the corruption that can ruin things. Sure. And, you know, like... Wrestlers can't use their name outside of the WWE without the WWE's permission. The WWE actually owns the names. That's why all the wrestlers have nicknames, as opposed to when I was a kid when it was Bob Backlund fighting Tony Gurria. That was their real names. You know, with the exception of a few guys like John Cena and things to that effect, they all use these nicknames now. Why? Because the WWE owns the names. It stops them from going to other wrestling organizations. And the fact that the UFC is... 
letting him use the name CM Punk kind of bothers me because it means the UFC probably had to pay. I'm guessing this is just speculation on my part. They probably had to pay the WWE to allow him to do that, and that kind of shit bothers me. I want the UFC yeah, although, to be pure. Sure. Although um, I, I'm, and again, I, I'm kind of speaking somewhat uneducated about this, but I heard that. There's some kind of issue between CM Punk and the WWE. Like, maybe he didn't leave on very good terms or whatever. So, I mean, the whole thing seems a little odd. I don't know. Um, But, yeah, I see what you mean. Like, for example, you know, boxing was, like, legit until Don King got involved. You know what I mean? And then whenever you saw Don King, um, you knew that something was shady. Somebody was getting ripped off. And then kind of boxing's integrity kind of went down as a whole. And then you you kind of wonder... um, if that's already happened for UFC, if that point is still in the future, or you know, at what point is is the Don King of UFC going to start kind of ruining it? So um, that's it's, definitely it, especially with the new ownership. I think you know, when new ownership has something to prove to people that they're going to they have to change something, and let's hope the change is not towards a WWE environment as opposed to an NFL environment. Like I, I one of the things I like. One of the uh, movement moves that I liked that the UFC made, and I know was not popular with a lot of fans, and especially the fighters, was the establishment of of a um, like UFC fight shorts, UFC corner uniforms. the uniforms. Because as much as everybody, I, I respect the fact that the fighters got a lot of uh, money out of the uh, endorsements on their shorts, having Condom Depot on a bumper stick to slap across your ass just didn't look like a professional fight organization. Sure. It didn't look like a professional sports organization. Could you imagine the, you know, members of the New York Giants coming out to play a game and having all having different endorsements sewn on their jerseys? No, you wouldn't yeah, want al- that. Although, although, to be fair, have you ever seen a NASCAR? NAS- <laughs> NASCARs kind of look like, you know, fighter shorts in the day. Sorry, i got to wipe off some sweat. I'm still feverish. See, I just thought you were hot looking at me. I thought, I thought you were looking at me and you're saying, holy shit, this, and you're doing like the whole Elvis thing, you know? <laughs> Elvis in his last couple of years. <laughs> where where, where he, he walked out and he was already completely drenched in sweat. <laughs> sorry, sorry. Thank so you. Anyways, Thank so, you very much. So, Sean, maybe um, we should actually start talking about like Kung Fu or something like that. Yes, yes. <laughs> Because uh, we, have, we have a lot to talk about tonight. I'm sorry we spent uh, a little bit more on the UFC than we normally would. But um, we're both kind of geeky uh, UFC fans and especially Conor McGregor fans. Well, one of the things I want to talk about a little bit tonight real quickly is uh, we received a, um, a message on our Facebook page. By the way, when you write into our Facebook page, Dudes of Kung Fu, every message gets answered. And every message is definitely gets read by... Alex or myself, so probably probably you though for full disclosure. Most likely me, because Alex really doesn't care that much. No, I'm just kidding; he's just busier than I am. No, I just stay off social media as much as possible. <laughs> so, uh, a gentleman named Sean Kramer wrote in, and he apparently like binge watched the uh, binge listened to the podcast. God, I'm so sorry. And um, he was up. Bothered by something I had said, and what bothers me is that he was only bothered by one thing. Yeah, I was gonna say most of what you say bothers me. It's amazing only one thing bothered this guy. <laughs> well, he wrote in. He said the only thing that bothered me was saying that the Tao of Jeet Kune Do was the worst thing ever made. That he strongly disagreed with that statement. And um, other than that, he he seemed to like you know the podcast a lot. 
But um, he was up. He was bothered by that. He was upset that I said that Tao Jikundo was the worst thing I ever made. And uh, you know, I didn't go back and listen to all the podcasts. I don't know exactly how I worded it. I don't know exactly what I said, but it does sound like something I would say flippantly. What I what I, what I really meant was that yeah, I, you know. When I say that Tao Jeet Kune Do was the worst thing ever made, or probably what I said was the worst thing in the world for Jeet Kune Do, was it was probably the best and worst thing in the world for Jeet Kune Do. That the Tao Jeet let me go, let me take a step back. When, when I was a young man, I for a little while studied in, um, something called Aido, which is the, art, the Japanese art of drawing the sword. And, um, and I remember my Aido teacher. This was back in the whole ninja craze. And um, I remember somebody showing up at class and bringing one of these, like, uh, straight ninja swords as opposed to a Japanese katana. And him, you know, talking about it and saying that he thought the worst thing in the world for ninjutsu was the ninja craze. And he said he hoped it never happened to Aido. And I was like, why would you hope that Aido not become popular? Your school would be packed. And he's right, but he goes. But he said, right, my, my school would be packed, but my art would be ruined. He says, right now, he goes, because of the ninja craze, people think that ninjas had straight swords. They think they ran around in these black uniforms that they never wore. They think they have all these common misconceptions about ninjutsu because of the marketing of the ninja craze. And when I think about that, and I think about like uh, an art that both Alex and I love very much, Wing Chun, how the Ip Man movies are probably the best and worst thing for Wing Chun. Oh, 100%. That, in that it increased probably uh, the student base for school owners and, and got it to the point where you know people want to train in, in Wing Chun, but now watching the movie, watching the movies leads to a large amount of misconceptions about the art. I mean, I literally had someone tell me that he was going to watch Ip Man 2 to learn how to beat a boxer with Wing Chun. <laughs> okay? So, you know, like, you have this kind of thinking. And when it gets back to the, the, the Tao Jeet Kune Do, I think people forget that while they remember that it's Bruce Lee's notes, they forget that it's only Bruce Lee's notes. It wasn't a book that Bruce Lee put together, as, as in the, the, the movie that they made about Bruce Lee. They made it as if he put this book together. That's not the truth. That's not what happened. This was a book that was put together of his notes after he passed away so that Linda Lee would have money to raise a family. You know, it was, it was, it was, it was done for good purposes and for good reason. And there's some really good information in there. But you know what? There's also some really bad information. And not intentionally. No one was looking to, to I'm sure no one was looking to, um, to give bad information. This was a man's personal notes. So they, they kind of scooped it together, sorted it out the best they could, and published it. And in there, you have some information that contradicts other information in the book. And you can say, well, so people now can read these books, and while the book was tremendous for Jeet Kune Do in helping grow in its popularity, it was horrible for Jeet Kune Do in that it led to so many misconceptions about some of the things that Bruce Lee did, didn't do, things that he was interested and not interested in. You know, Bruce Lee was a, a man who just took a, a ferocious amount of notes. I, I don't know, I can't attest to the accuracy of this, of this number, but I was told that when Bruce Lee passed away, he had 6,000 pages of notes. 6,000 pages of notes. 
You're going to tell me all of that was vital? No, of course not. Some of it was probably bullshit. Some of it was probably, oh, it was on his mind that day, and then he went to wherever he trained, and he hung out with Ted Wong, and he hung out with Dan Asanto and tested stuff out and said, oh, this shit didn't work. You think he went home and crossed it out in his notes? No, it was just like a piece of paper laying on his, on his dresser. Then the man dies, and someone scoops up that piece of paper, publishes it, and people are reading it as if it's gospel because Bruce Lee wrote it. And, and, and I feel bad for the guy who does that. So that's what I mean when I say that the Tao of Jeet Kune Do is, best, is the best and worst thing about Jeet Kune Do, in that it helped its popularity, but it did send some people off in a bad direction when it comes to the understandings of what Jeet Kune Do is and its applications. You know, that's really interesting that you say that because I also take copious notes, and I have anybody who's been to my house knows I have tons of books on every martial art and all sorts of stuff, and I annotate things in books. I have actual notebooks where I've written stuff, and if somebody didn't really know much about my Wing Chun or about my presentation and I were to pass away and they would go through my notes and look at the stuff that I had written on um, in in the books, they might get a somewhat... um, odd interpretation of what um, I I believed in. So sometimes I'll circle something just because I find it's interesting, but I have no value judgment negative or positive. It's just like, oh, this is an interesting fact about Shotokan karate, right? And it, it's not something where I go, now I need to integrate this or not integrate. I'm like, wow, that's kind of cool, right? Or here's a note about something that I found was somewhat similar and it reminds me of something I heard a long time ago, but I may not do that anymore. So it's it's almost impossible to look at anybody's notes, whether handwritten or you're looking at their highlights or their underlines or what they put in a book and say, now I know exactly what this person's thought process was. And I think that's what happens with a lot of the Tao of Jeet Kune Do is that people use that stuff and said, this is exactly what Bruce Lee thought. Why? Because it's what he wrote. And just based on that, um, some kind of scribbles that he had put down got suddenly sold wholesale as some kind of, like you said, gospel truth or whatever, right? Right. I mean, there's, I've had the argument presented to me on numerous occasions by people that discount Wing Chun as the reason they stopped doing Wing Chun was because there was no very little notes regarding Wing Chun in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. What books would he have written notes from that he was reading? Most of the stuff in Tao of Jeet Kune Do were notes on books that he was reading, on boxing, on Krishnamurti, fencing. What books were available about Wing Chun in the 60s and 70s? None. Right, so, that, that, so that's the other thing I wanted to bring up. Excellent point. Is that the other misconception about the Tao of Jeet Kune Do is that these are notes that Bruce Lee actually wrote. He wrote them as in, yeah, he wrote them down by hand, but they were almost always notes that he took from other sources. Yes. That's why there was a big famous lawsuit after the book was published that he owned that he owed money you know, that the estate owed money to um uh, the boxing book. Uh jeez, I'm drawing a blank on the boxing book. Dempsey? Yes. No no no. Um anyway, well, what's the famous the box from well there's a number of them, like Corbett's boxing book. No, no, there's... no. There's there's the one you have. It's it's one of the original copies. Championship fighting by Jack Dempsey. Okay, maybe that's it. Um, has it Hazlitt? Is it the Hazlitt book? No, that's another book. But no, I mean uh, there are a lot of classic books on boxing. Yeah. Anyway, there was one one of the um, <clears throat> one of the boxing books. They showed that a, a, a lot of the notes were direct directly taken from uh, boxing books and uh, and fencing books, where he literally would just change the word foil to arm, or foil to lead. 
you know, or just change certain words to make it an, an empty hand note versus a a uh, a fencing uh-huh. note. Right. And, and 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 that's brilliant. And you know, it's not like he had cut and paste at that time, so he couldn't. You know, so these were just notes that he was taking. Oh, this is an interesting way of looking at things. You know, another thing that Bruce Lee liked to do was Bruce Lee had an established strategy and methodology to his uh, to his fighting. It wasn't just oh, I'm going to take this technique from here and this technique from here. There was an established methodology. There was an established series of tactics and strategy, and he wanted to make sure that it, within his repertoire of strategy and, and tactics that he had an answer for any problem that he may face. And the way to do that was to examine other arts. Now, one of the misconceptions of, of Jeet Kune Do, in my opinion, is that he, Bruce Lee was continuously examining other arts with the idea of, uh, quote-unquote, absorbing what was useful. Sure, he was trying to absorb what was useful, but the, 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 the usefulness of the other arts was in its, in its tactics, in its attacking methodologies, and how it dealt with problems. So Bruce Lee was looking at these other arts. Let's just pick an art. As a matter of fact, let's go say Shotokan, because it probably didn't ever happen. He would look at, let's say, the art of Shotokan to look to see how they trained how they dealt with certain attacks, how they launched certain attacks, and did he have within his understanding and within his training methodology and within his structure and strategy ways of dealing with that problem, did he have the key to unlock the art of Shotokan? And so he would look at Shotokan practitioners, talk with Shotokan practitioners, and again, I'm just making up Shotokan because I'm, I'm, I'm sure that that didn't happen. It was other more famous arts, but I don't want people screaming at me. So, and, and, and try to understand their arts, not to steal techniques from them, right. but rather to understand how they attacked and how they dealt with attack to, uh, to know if he had a sufficient strategy and tactics within his own personal system to deal with that. That's what Bruce Lee was taking notes about. And I think that gets lost in translation when it comes to the Tao of Jeet Kune Do, sure. where they'll see just a bunch of notes on Penjak Salat, and now they're all running out and studying Penjak Salat, which is a brilliant martial art. I'm not knocking Penjak Salat. I'm just saying that they have to undis- try and get inside the head of where Bruce Lee was at on a really much higher level than he was trying to borrow techniques from another system. If you think that Bruce Lee at the age of 30 was looking to increase the amount of techniques he had, then you do not understand Jeet Kune Do on a high level. Bruce Lee was trying to reduce the amount of tools he was carrying. If Bruce Lee could beat you with a finger jab, he would. This was not about a man trying to absorb more techniques. He was trying to absorb more knowledge so that he could understand what angles were needed, what timing was needed, what distance was needed, what, which of his, his series of strategy and tactics, the five ways of attack, were needed to deal with all aspects of your art. Okay, if you look at look at that phrase, absorb what is useful, reject what is useless, and add what is specifically your own, in that light, as opposed to the idea of techniques, to, 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 to look at that expression in the terms of techniques is, in my opinion, the wrong way to go about it. 
By the way, um, that was that was all beautiful what you just said. I, I think um, for those people who say like, oh well, there wasn't a lot of Wing Chun written in Tao Chi Kundo, so clearly Bruce didn't um, didn't hold it in high regard or whatever. Well, first of all, like like we had mentioned, I mean, most of what was in uh, Tao of Chi Kundo were his notes taken from boxing books, Krishnamurti, ph- philosophical leanings, all sorts of other things. So there were no Wing Chun books for him to to write notes of. Besides. I'm pretty sure Bruce was convinced that what he understood of Wing Chun was enough and he wouldn't need to necessarily write additional notes about Wing Chun. But the gag is, um, and I don't even know if I should say this, but, you know, you have a lot of rare notes that Bruce Lee had, had written. You have copies of, of very, very rare notes, right? And yep. that's stuff that's not in the Tao of Jeet Kune Do. And you did something really, really cool once is you you gave me a copy of some of this stuff uh, so that I could take a look at it. And um, the notes in Chinese, because there's a bunch of stuff he wrote in English and there's a bunch of stuff he wrote in Chinese. All the stuff in Chinese is about Wing Chun, all of it. And none of that (laughs) stuff ever got translated into English because – when he was talking about Wing Chun, if he was going to make notes to himself, the easiest way for him to do that was in Chinese because he learned Wing Chun in Chinese. People forget that. So it was much easier for him to write offhanded notes about the art that he knew and to compare things in Chinese. And so most of the stuff that he actually writes in Chinese was in Wing Ch- was about Wing Chun. The gag is, do you think it's kind of odd that he'd write everything else in English, but when it came to the Wing Chun stuff, he's like, no, 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 I'm going to write this in Chinese. <laughs> so if, if he actually held anything in esteem it might have actually been the Wing Chun because it was the one thing he wouldn't allow to be written in in English which could easily be captured by other people you know what I mean that's an excellent point so um, also this is just one little point on my OCD and this is completely meaningless but every time somebody says the Tao of Jeet Kune Do right Do and Tao right (laughs) Do and Tao are the same word (laughs) Of course, in, in regular English, we use the Mandarin spelling. Well, uh, actually, the Mandarin spelling should be a D. It's pronounced Dao in Mandarin, right? Um, but it's written T in English because of think of the old Wade Giles way of spelling it or whatever. But what people always forget is the Do in Jeet Kune Do is the same as the Dao. So I always think like <laughs> you're like half of that is in Mandarin, half of it is in Cantonese. And when I saw the book Dao of Jeet Kune Do in Hong Kong, it was in the Chinese version. And, you know, I never really thought of it because I don't pay too much attention to the title. And I had known about that book since I was a kid. And then I was at a bookstore in Hong Kong once and I saw like they had a, a martial arts section and they had some books on Bruce Lee. And they had Tao Ji Kendo in Chinese. And I looked at the Chinese title and it's like... Just <laughs> like the dough of Jeet Kune Do. And I looked at it, I'm like, oh yeah, right, that's the same word. Like and I'm like and I'm like, and that title actually sounds really stupid in Chinese. <laughs> because it's like the way of the intercepting this way. It just sounds very redundant in Chinese. So anyway, um, of course, that's not Bruce Lee's fault. He, you know, un- un- like you said, unlike the movie Dragon, he not only did he not compile that book while he was alive, but I mean he, I mean he never compiled it as a book so right. you know these these are things that were all done uh, uh, posthumously in fact so far as I understood the only thing that he ever um, 
actually finished as a book was his first one was the uh, Kung Fu, the Philosophical Art of Self-Defense. And um, then he had planned on making some books with uh, Black Belt with Yuhara Publishing or Ohara Publishing or whatever, which got published later as what's known as Bruce Lee's Fighting Method and how how those things stack up to what Bruce Lee originally envisioned. I mean, it's, it's up to uh, up to the reader to decide or whatever. But yeah, I mean, he, he actually was not that prolific as a, um, a writer. Oh, but speaking of books, Sean... I told you about this book. Uh, actually, I have it right here. It's called Striking Distance. Yes, yes, yes. You mentioned that to me. And I'm about halfway through. And basically, it's about a book about Bruce Lee's time in San Francisco and Oakland and how he kind of intermingled with some of the other martial arts guys, right? Um, and also, it talks a lot about, like, James M. Lee and stuff like that. Lots of really interesting things in there. They talk about the um, early uh, martial arts kind of uh, history of San Francisco and so on and so forth. Um but what's really interesting about it is that it's, um, hold on, hold on, someone's trying to call me, apologize. Um, what's interesting about it is that um, it, it has a couple stories about uh, Bruce Lee in there, um, which are, uh, well, I'm not going to say they're less than flattering, but it kind of makes assumptions about, like, some of the other kung fu guys, like, you know, uh, Bruce Lee had kind of showed up to some Choi Le Fut guy's school, and the Choi Le Fut guy told him to leave, and, and then, uh, you know, that... Yeah, of course, the battle between him and Wong Jack Man, who really knows what happened, and so on and so forth. Um, but in any case, the book is extremely interesting. When I finish reading it, which should be like by tomorrow, um, I'll I'll talk a little bit more about some of the things that um, they. Uh, uh, that he says. By the way, the, the author, his name is Charles Russo, and the book is called Striking Distance, Bruce Lee and the Dawn of Martial Arts in America. So uh, if you go to Amazon, it's definitely worth a read. Um, very interesting if you're kind of an you know old-school kung fu geek. Not just about Bruce Lee, there's a lot of other stuff about the kind of beginnings of the martial arts scene in America. So it's a really fascinating book, and I'll, I'll talk a little bit more about it uh, next week after I, I give it a thorough read. All right, cool. And by the way, dude, are you feeling okay? Because you're sweating more than Patrick Ewing on the fleet throw line, man. <laughs> well, you know what it is? Because I don't want there to be any background noise, I turned that AC you see in the background is also turned off. So ah. I'm, I'm also kind of, you know, sweating like the proverbial whore in church because there is no AC and it's still, <laughs> it's still pretty damn hot in here. <laughs> uh, yeah, by the way, I left the air conditioner on because I honestly didn't give a shit about the background noise. <laughs> well, this is a, well, you have, you have like a, you know, a built-in AC unit. This is like a standard New York in the window unit, which is like loud as all hell, you know. Gotcha, so, gotcha. So anyway, do we have another another question from our? We uh, absolutely do. Um, someone had wrote in and asking, um, uh, uh, Laura Devito, which you know whether she is or not, just sounds like the perfect name from a girl from Brooklyn. Laura <laughs> Devito, I just love it. Uh, wrote in, um, I'd like to hear your views on the pros and cons of training in two martial arts. At the same time, for for instance, uh, Wing Chun and Tai Chi, she wrote, or or something else, you know, and that leads me, that leads us. It's a great question, I thought, because it's something a lot of people face. But in in addition to that question, I'd like to throw a third thing in there. Is people think always ask, oh, what's your opinion of Jeet Kune Do or Wing Chun versus Krav Maga, or or you know, should I train in this art versus this art? And, and and that's not something you can answer. Like, at least I can't. I can't answer like about a specific art. Uh huh. You know what I mean? Like, I, like people. A lot of people write in asking about Krav Maga. What do you think? What do you think is better, Jeet Kune Do or Krav Maga? And I always answer back with, Well, I've never studied Krav Maga, so I, I couldn't tell you. 
But, what, but let's go back to the original question. I guess I went off on a tangent too early. What do you, what, what's your opinion on training in two watts at the same time there, uh, Alex, man? Just give me just one moment here. Well, while Alex is readjusting his, uh, his uh, T-shirt there, I am going to talk a little bit about what I think. As far as the, when you, if you're going to pick two martial arts to train in, I think it'd be, it would benefit you to make sure that the arts complement each other. So what I mean by that is this: if you, if you, like my 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 personal art, you know my um, my 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 core art, I guess is is Jeet Kune Do, and I wouldn't train in anything on a higher level that took away from the core principles of what I do, which is why it led me to Wing Chun. Like, so if I was going to train in another martial art, I would train in one of, like, say, four arts. I would train in either boxing at a real boxing gym, Wing Chun at a real Wing Chun school, fencing, at a collegiate fencing school or something, a high-level fencing school or a fencing team, and or something like Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu, which would help me deal with things that my art does, doesn't help me with. But, like, I wouldn't train in a system that taught me something outside of the realm of my base art. My base art is Jeet Kune Do, so my base art is comprised primarily of Wing Chun, fencing, and boxing. So I would pick one of those three. Now, Tai Chi was an... Laura DeVito mentioned Tai Chi, and I thought that was interesting, and this will really probably piss off some Tai Chi people. I always looked at Tai Chi and Wing Chun as somewhat related. And um, and this is not an original thought, but I, I would love to claim it as one. Someone someone said to me once that they thought Wing Chun was the combative version of Tai Chi. Oh, brother. And <laughs> I was like, okay. And they, and they, they kind of made an argument for it. But when, when I would not train in something that took me away from my base art too far because the, quite frankly the mind none of us are as smart as we think we are <laughs> and I, I know I'm dumb I know I'm dumb as dog shit so I don't want my mind clouded, clouded with information at the one time I may need to use my fist I mean really I'm a 51 year old fat man I may hopefully will never have to use my fist combatively for the rest of my life if it should happen once over the next 30 or 40 years that I have to even make a fist, I don't want my mind clouded with useless bullshit. So I, I, would, I would personally stay away from training in several lots at one time. But that's, that's a decision I've made because I know I'm an idiot. <laughs> well, I think you bring up a really good point, Sean. I mean, um, when, it talk, when we're talking about fighting or self-defense or whatever you want to call it, um, it makes much more sense from a practical perspective to be really good at one thing than really crappy at a bunch of stuff. You know, you could uh, uh, be really well practiced in a certain type of fighting, whether it's Wing Chun or boxing or whatever it is. And when you're attacked, if you have the reps and you really practice that, you will do much better at that one thing that you really practice the living hell out of than, you know, if you had done five different martial arts or something like that. You know what I mean? And. I think that that's where people kind of get mixed up a little bit because on one end of the spectrum, if we care about self-defense, um, we should be specialized. 
On the other end of the spectrum, we only live once, and we like to try a bunch of shit because it's fun, right? right. So um, I think that if somebody has a solid of enough base in one martial art where they could call that, like, this is their home base, this is their self-defense art, this is the thing that they would use if they're attacked, and they feel confident in that, then it's maybe not a bad idea if they feel like they want to do another martial art as a hobby or to expand their horizons or for whatever reason. I think it makes much more sense if they already have some kind of base in something. But what you have is, like, people, they they barely, um, <laughs> like my good friend uh, Tom DeBlas, who's a Brazilian jiu-jitsu black belt, he's one of the top competitors, he, he complained about people who are blue belts in Brazilian jiu-jitsu getting on Facebook and, and saying all sorts of, like, you know, declarative statements about, you know, what's true in the world of grappling and he said you know these guys have barely dipped their oh can you hear me can you hear me yes i can yes i can okay I'm good. all right sorry it looked like it, it, it um everything went silent there for a moment sorry um uh, no problem uh let me just try it down the bus oh yeah okay so so tom said uh, <laughs> Tom kind of got cranky about all these Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu black belts, or sorry, Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu blue belts going on Facebook as if they're like these, these guru level experts. And he says, you know, these guys have barely dipped their balls in the martial art, and here they go telling <laughs> people what the deal is. And I kind of feel it's a bit the same way when somebody like let's say they do Wing Chun for six months and then they're like, okay, well, I know a little bit of Wing Chun, but now what I really need to do is go and do boxing. And and then they're going to still do Wing Chun, but now they're going to do boxing where they're going to learn a different way to stand, a different way to hit, and then all that's going to do, in my opinion, is kind of ruin both of them, because they're going to go into the boxing class with Wing Chun habits, which are bad for boxing, and they're going to go into the Wing Chun class with boxing habits, which are bad for Wing Chun, and then they kind of mess up both sides of it. But if they have a serious base in one thing, and then they can go and try something else as a complete beginner, then I think that's okay. Like, for example, um, I occasionally go to boxing gyms. There's a boxing gym in New York City, which I will go to from time to time, um, just to do boxing training. And when I go in there, um, I go in there totally as a boxing student. I don't go in there with like, well, actually in Wing Chun, I would do it this way. Or, uh, well, actually in Wing Chun. Hey, if I'm there to tell a high, you know, my boxing trainer is a Golden Gloves champion from Toronto. I didn't, I'm not paying him hourly to tell him what I would do in Wing Chun. I'm paying him to teach me how to box. So one, I can understand boxing better. Two, I can teach my students how to train against boxers better. And three, outside of all of that, I just want to learn boxing pure and simple as an art to enhance what I'm able to do. And so I don't go in there with the Wing Chun goggles and stuff and, and make my poor boxing trainer's job miserable by saying like, well, wouldn't you actually want to punch this way? Uh, well, wouldn't you actually want to punch this way? Uh, you can go there completely as a student. Now, if I were to go into a Brazilian Jiu-Jitsu school, I would do the same thing. I go in there as a student. I don't go in there, well, actually in Wing Chun, I would just knee you in the balls right now or something like that. Because <laughs> if I'm that guy, why am I there? It's being disrespectful and you're not going to be able to learn anything if you already go in with the goggles of your previous martial arts so if i tell my students hey if you guys want to go train somewhere else when you go there you do exactly what that instructor what that trainer tells you to do and don't be the wing chun guy over there the same way don't be the brazilian jiu-jitsu guy over here trying you know like unless we ask you okay you know brazilian jiu-jitsu let's do some takedown stuff can you take down some of my students you know be respectful to the person that you're learning from and do what they want you to do so that's kind of one perspective the other thing is 
there's certain people who can handle doing multiple arts and there are other people that it just ruins them. So I'm, I'm able to compartmentalize. I can go into a boxing gym and box for two hours and I could teach a Wing Chun private lesson in the next hour and not be mixed up at all. And I could, uh, um, you know, go and do a Brazilian jiu-jitsu session with, with a high-level Brazilian jiu-jitsu guy and then in the next hour teach my guys how I would prefer to stop somebody from taking me down and not have any of that stuff kind of uh, interfere with it. But there are other people that if they learn one way to do a takedown defense, they can't learn any other one because their, their brain can only handle one at a time. So it's really an individual thing whether people can even handle mentally and physically doing more than one martial art without it ruining them. And then the other question is whether that's actually going to make them better even if they can. So that's kind of my take on that. Yeah, I mean, well said, of course. I just, um, I know for me, when I want to learn something, I'm all in. I may sometimes bounce around from hobby to hobby on different things, but when I'm in for the long haul on something, I'm in for the long haul. I want to learn all I can possibly learn about it. And I kind of feel like more learning takes place away from the practice hall then you realize there's yeah. these epiphanies while you're sitting on the couch watching TV or, you know, eating dinner. Why? Because it's kind of churning in your background in your, of your mind all the time. And so, like, I made a commitment to myself that I'm all in on Muyat Wing Chun. And I have resources available to me to learn other systems of Wing Chun. Quite frankly, Alex is one of my best friends. If I want to learn... More about, you know, some, some or more about anything about um, his Wing Chun. I have, I have like, one of my best friends is, is, is brilliant at it. But, you know, Alex and I don't have that relationship for two reasons. One, we want to continue to like each other. And, <laughs> and two, I am all in on Moyat Wing Chun. Now, am I saying Moyat Wing Chun is better than Wang Chun Lung Wing Chun or Lung Ting Wing Chun or, of course or William Chun? Well, of course I'm saying that. No, what I'm saying is I made a commitment to this. I want to learn this. Once I feel like I've learned enough about it that I could pass it on without altering it. Altering? I don't know how to write. Altering it. Fuck you. Um, I will then sit there and say, okay, you know what? I want to learn a little bit about the way other Wing Chun systems do things. But I feel like for right now, for me to learn the way other Wing Chun systems do things would kind of, and I'm not even talking about it respect-wise, I'm just talking about would take away from me learning what I'm learning. You know what I mean? My, there's a reason something's done in, 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 in your lineage, and to change it up without understanding the higher levels of that lineage kind of takes away from what you're learning. And I think doing a different martial art totally is the, is even tougher on your brain because you're you're now having to deal like with Alex said different stances and different footwork, and um, I think Laura's question is a brilliant question. I just I just don't know the right answer for it. It's really an individualized thing. Yeah, definitely. You know, but it it does take us um, to another area of discussion, Alex. Um, when it comes to like footwork and and things, it, it, it literally just popped into my head. So, one time someone told me you have all the footwork. If you walked into the room, you have all the footwork you need. And I kind of agreed and disagreed with it at, at, at the same time. I understand the premise, but do you look at footwork as just moving about, 
Or do you look at his footwork for something else? And now let me qualify what I'm talking about here so you don't think I'm just having an aneurysm while doing the podcast. In, in JKD, as I do it, footwork is not footwork. Footwork is not just is not um, just being able to walk around. Footwork is how we employ a lot of our strategy. You know, we talk about distance, timing, and rhythm. Oftentimes, these things are uh, empowered and, and, and utilized through footwork. The idea of half steps, stop steps, reverse stepping, things like that is how we enforce our foot, how we enforce our strategies through footwork. Um, I guess or some people call this bridging. You know, how do you bridge the gap is the question you usually get. And, and then whenever I hear bridge the gap, I think footwork. And not because that's how you move with footwork. We br- I bridge the gap because of strategy. And the strategy is employed through footwork. If people ask you about bridging the gap, what's, what kind of like pops into your head? Like what, what, or, you know, bridging and things to that effect. Where, where do you take things like that? Um, <clears throat> well, I mean, I think... I look at it a little bit differently because I, I generally don't practice Wing Chun in the mindset that I'm standing toe-to-toe, kind of bouncing back and forth with my opponent. For me, that that is more a scenario that occurs either in sport fighting uh, or in just straight-up fighting. And um, I view a self-defense scenario and a practical fighting situation is a little bit different because, you know, for me, um, it's like the proverbial, the guy walks up to you in the bar, doesn't like your face or whatever, and he, he gets in your face and starts talking nonsense, and you're already within the range where, you know, if one person throws a punch, it could be the end of the night for either person. And unfortunately, that's kind of where most fighting starts. So um, I'm a huge fan of boxing and movement and all that kind of stuff, but I, I don't really see most street fights actually happening that way. When you see two dudes put their hands up and they're going back and forth, these are two dudes who've elected to fight. So we're not talking about a self-defense scenario. If, if the cops came, they would have to arrest both of those guys because they are fighting totally voluntarily. My thing is like the dude standing up right in front of me and he's like, you know, what the hell are you looking at? And then either you de-escalate the situation, um, which is highly probable, or you have to move in really quickly. So I'm already thinking most of the situations that I would find myself in, which I don't find myself in these situations because I'm a pretty nice guy, um, I would already be kind of within the range where if it's on, it's on very quickly. So footwork for me at that point is if I take a lot of power from my opponent, I want to be able to move and shift and borrow that and change the angle. I'm not thinking of footwork so much at distance and timing him and countering him because I don't personally see that as the situation I'm going to end up in, which is one of the reasons why I'm very interested in in JKD and and movement footwork and boxing and all that kind of stuff because it addresses... uh, you know something that I'm 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 a little weak on primarily because it's not the situation I've trained for and it's not the situation I find myself in but I'm so fascinated and so for me footwork is more when I'm already in the mix and I need to move and shift and borrow force and, and and put myself in a better position and move away from strikes rather than kind of that at distance kind of bobbing back and forth kind of idea that a lot of people think about well, geez, now that you have a car, I wonder who you can learn some JKD footwork from. Um, <laughs> let me try and think. There's By the way, people, there's some people in Brooklyn, I heard. Okay, All right, fuck you. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, 
Well, if you notice, Alex started that whole scenario off with people walk up and say, you know, I don't like your face and and, and, and just throw a punch. And then he says he doesn't find himself in that scenario too often because he just knows he's, like, so damn pretty. It's like that's the problem. He's, you know, when Alex is in a bar, it's like, you know, he's the one that gets carded because he looks like he's 16. That is yeah. actually true. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just find a lot of the bridging questions, while sincere, I find them um, to be not thought through. I, uh, the, the questions themselves are thought through, like because uh, it's a problem that that needs to be addressed. If, if, if your opponent wants to fight you, they're gonna they're gonna they're gonna bridge the gap on you. They're gonna they're gonna do all the bridging that needs to happen. How we look at it, I shouldn't say that how we look at it in JKD. How I look at it in Jeet Kune Do is after the initial strike is when the footwork comes into play. You know, because unless you're an idiot, you're either going to put your hands up and hit, or you're going to take a step back and, and have to control the situation. Especially if you're in a street where it's, you know, there's space to move on a sidewalk. Um, I think bridging gets confused and mixed up with footwork. And I'm the first one to do that. Like I'm, I, I, I will mix footwork and bridging, but for a reason. Because bridging has something to do with um, the strategy that I employ. But when I hear people say, oh, how do I bridge? Or I do a step and slide to a slide step. Or I do this, I don't know, I see some Wing Chun people do this, like, skipping type step. Which, you know, if it works for them, great. But don't tell me it's bridging. Because if unless it's... Unless it's based on strategy, it's just another variation of a step. When it comes to footwork, there's two ways of doing footwork. There's, you can either be proactive or reactive. And if you're going to look at footwork, you have to always think in terms, if you can, of being proactive in your footwork. If you're being reactive in your footwork, then you are behind the eight ball. Whether you realize it or not, you're losing. Okay, you need to control the situation, and the only way to control that situation, as far as I know, is through proactive, proactive footwork. Proactive footwork, to me, is understanding how to take control of what your opponent is doing, and 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 putting them on pressure, getting their weight on their real rear heel, and if if that has to be part of your strategy. So when people say to you, oh, how do you bridge the gap? If you ask somebody, how do you bridge the gap? And they just give you examples of footwork, that means they don't know what the F they're talking about. So, like, I, I've, I've had discussions with other JKD people, and we'll talk about bridging or, or bridging the gap. And they'll say, oh, well, I like to do a step and slide to a burning step. Or if that doesn't work, then I'll do a you know, slide step to a burst. If that doesn't work... And I like to remind them that the part where they say that doesn't work means they just got punched in the fucking face. So, <laughs> you know, like when we talk about strategy and you talk about the five ways of attack, oh, I like to try PIA, and if PIA doesn't work, then I'll do this. And I say, well, is that why you're recovering from the concussion? And they're talking about, what do you mean the concussion? I'm like, well, if you tried PIA and it didn't work, it means you got punched in the fucking face. One of the things that people forget, and one of the best lessons I ever learned from Steve Golden, ever, best lesson I ever learned from Steve Golden was, never forget that what you're trying to do to your opponent, your opponent is trying to do to you. 
you have one shot. You know, there's a, um, a maxim in Wing Chun. Um, I'll screw it up. I can't say it in Chinese, but I can relatively get it right in, uh, in English, where the, the, the pole makes one sound. Right, Alex, is something the pole makes one sound, the long pole makes one sound, something to that effect? Yes, although in Chinese they, they always phrase it negatively because Chinese education always tells you what you ought not to do and never what you should do. The, the motto in Chinese is the pole does not make two sounds. Okay, so when, when I first heard that maxim, I immediately, and, and like everybody else that I knew at the time, understood that to mean that when it came to the long pole, you had to have defense and offense at the same time. That the long pole should clear the line and attack in one thrust. And it, it makes perfect sense. And in, in talking, one of my first um, uh, Wing Chun Maxim lessons with uh, my Sifu, Tom Kagan, and we were talking about... Um, some of, you know, talking about some of the maxim, and that maxim came up because um, I do long pole with him, and um, and he told me that Moyat explained it as when you have the long pole, it's eight nine feet long. You have one shot, get it right. Right. You know, you have one try at this. If you miss, they get in between the point of the pole and you. And once they're in between the point of the pole and you, the pole is near useless. Other you guys are like whacking at it with a, like a baseball bat. You know, the pole is near useless once people get past the point. Right. So you have one shot. Make that shot work. Make that shot count. And that is how you have to think about your footwork in martial arts. You have one shot to get that in. You have one shot when it comes to your strategy. You have one shot to make it work. There is no, if that doesn't work, I'll try this bullshit. Because if that doesn't work, you just got punched in the effing face. And unless you're Mike Tyson, you may get knocked out by getting punched in the effing face. You know, none of us are professional fighters. So have that idea. I have one shot to make it work. And... Take that that idea of I got one shot. The long pole doesn't make two sounds, and keep that in mind when you say I'm going to plan on training bridging. Because realize if someone's coming at you, if bridging was just covering the distance, trust me, your opponent's going to bridge. If he wants to fight you, he's going to get on top of you. Your job is dealing with that. And it's not box. It's not bouncing around like a boxer. JKD footwork. While while some people may take it as moving around like a boxer, it's really not. It's dealing with how to take control of a of an of a rushing attacker, and his hands flailing at you quickly, decisively, and proactively. That's JKD footwork, and, 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 and remember that. When people start talking bridging, and they start talking about in terms of pre-programmed footwork, that they are bullshitting you, whether they realize it or not. Anyway, that's what I wanted to talk about, and let the hate mail commence. <laughs> awesome. <laughs> oh, man. So, that was uh, great. Hey, by the way, um, you had mentioned to me we might be getting a guest in the near future. When are we going to announce this guest? 
Well, I guess like we did with the last awesomeness guest that we had, we, we really didn't tell the people until the day that we actually got the thing recorded. Okay. But we have lined up for you for this season one awesome, incredible freaking guest in, in the, from the land of Jeet Kune Do that um, anybody that's done Jeet Kune Do for more than an hour absolutely knows this man. And um, you're going to be. That there was, I heard that there was one condition that he would do the podcast on, and it's going to be very difficult for you. Well, I did it once before. Okay, so the person had asked that I keep my potty mouth. Well, I, I offered to me keep my potty mouth in check because um, not everybody appreciates the fine art of the Brooklyn voice. But. <laughs> <laughs> so um, yes, you know I've 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 been a gentleman before. Hey, I work in a Wall Street office. I know when to curse and when not to. <laughs> awesome, awesome. I'm looking forward to that. Yeah, we're gonna have. So we have um, we have a pretty good season of uh, podcast lined up for you. This is uh, episode one of season two, and we again really ask for more inf- more questions and topics from you guys because. It really helps us, you know. We want we want you guys to be happy. We we love that we have you know twelve podcasts out there, and we have um, over. Uh, they, I think we're at like fifty five hundred downloads now. That's awesome. I mean, that's pretty freaking incredible for you know two guys from New York here, you know. And we 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 really want to make you guys happy. We want to talk about stuff that you guys want to talk about. There is no dumb question, you know. What I mean, it's. It's, if you're interested in it, we're interested in it. Why not? They're all, you know, they're, they're only dumb answers, as our listeners understand. <laughs> <laughs> right, there are only dumb answers, and then there's the ones I give. No, we just. <laughs> <laughs> yes, exactly. Oh well, what can I say? So I hope you guys enjoyed uh, the episode. We uh, had fun um, coming back at you. Where this is, uh, I, I'm not gonna lie, I've missed it. I. Uh, I'm like I wasn't like a kid going back to school. I was like a kid on Christmas morning when we decided we were doing the podcast today because I just love this shit. The I love text messages you sent me in between were funny. They're like, "Oh man, I'm really missing the podcast." Oh man, and I'm like, <laughs> "And what was my answer? You need to get a hobby, man." <laughs> Speaking about hobbies, I need one more quick topic before we go. Sure. So, one of the um, one of my uh, passions, obsessions. Outside of martial arts, is guitar playing. I uh, I love guitar. I suck at it, but I love it. And it's it's got me thinking. In in terms of martial arts wise, I was uh, chatting with a buddy of mine that plays guitar, and he just said to me, "Oh, who learned? Who's teaching you how to play guitar? Who is your sifu in guitar?" Right, and I said, "Oh, you know, a guy at a local store here." And, so, you know, that's cool. And that's where the conversation ended. He didn't ask me who he learned how to play guitar from. So, in other words, he didn't ask me my lineage. So, and if I met a guy who was awesome at guitar playing, I wouldn't even dream of asking him how he learned it. I would say, teach me, you know. Why in the martial arts is lineage so important? If I, if I had just met Alex, seen him perform martial arts, seen him perform Wing Chun and wanted to learn it, what do I care what lineage he's from? Clearly he's skilled and I want to learn from him. It is meaningless to me what lineage he's from. Now granted, yes, if you were going to go have surgery, you would want to make sure the surgeon 
has a license to practice medicine. Folks, this isn't surgery, okay? It's martial arts. So if you see someone who knows more than you, don't worry about what lineage they are. Just like if you want to learn how to play guitar and you saw my fat ass sitting on a stool playing House of the Rising Sun and you would say, hey, that was pretty good. Can you teach me how to play that? You don't care who taught me how to play guitar. You know what I mean? Don't worry about the lineage. I'm sorry, Alex. I just wanted to talk about that. It was just, it was on my mind. No, it makes sense. I mean, most people don't pursue it, and in, in, in it's never a question in, in nearly anything except traditional martial arts, because in the world where most of Wing Chun, for, for example, Wing Chun and Jeet Kune Do is decided on internet forums and keyboards where people are not actually comparing and fighting and doing whatever, then the only thing that matters to then that's the only currency people have is some kind of lineage nonsense or whatever. And the conversation in traditional martial arts has gone so far away from function that it's it's just it's it's childlike nonsense. That's basically all it is. Yeah, it's it's true, you know, one of the um one of the surest fire surefire ways of telling a Jikundo website is there's 16 lineages on the website. Here's my lineage for this art. Here's my lineage for this art. There's a, meanwhile, if you go to an MMA school, you barely know who the guy trained with. It may say, oh, I do Gracie Jiu-Jitsu. But that's it. There's no lineage all the way back to oh, the guy from Japan that went over to... You know, there's this ridiculous emphasis on lineage. Let the emphasis be on skill and performance. On, on you know, the coaching ability of the person teaching you, as opposed to who he pays monthly dues to. It's, um, let, skill, let skill and performance be your barometer, rather than uh, what sheets of paper they have hanging on the wall. Sounds good to me, man. I think that's a great place to leave it off. That was a very, very cool, uh, uh, cool statement there, and I think uh, maybe people need to sit and think about that a little bit. All right, brother. Well, we both know we both rely on me for the cool statements. I mean, that's just what Usually, I do. That's what I. That's what I do, speeches. brother. <laughs> <laughs> All right, All folks. Right. We will see you next week. And uh, Alex, say goodbye. Bye bye. <laughs> see you later, folks. Thank you.